Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that takes a look at the people behind the plans, showcasing the work, life, and stories of planners from all across the profession. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. Our guest today is Trevor Dick, AICP. Trevor has worked in the public and private sectors of planning. He is a recent U.S. citizen and serves as the PDO for the Illinois chapter of APA. Trevor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Courtney. It's great to be here. So we've already taken out bus ads and billboards billing this episode as the funny one. You're a veteran of APA's Fast, Funny, and Passionate, so let's start off with a rapid-fire segment of True or False. Are you ready? All right, no pressure. Your current position is the Director of Development Strategy and Facilitation for the City of Aurora, Illinois. That sounds like you just go to a bunch of meetings. True or false? (laughs) It's false, but most of my meetings, I'm actually talking about what does my title mean. So yes, it's a little bit of true and false. There's a rumor that you took the Aurora job just because of your love of Wayne's World. True or false? False. But if you would have told uh, high school Trevor, who was growing up on a farm in Canada, with a beautiful mullet, by the way, um, that I'd be someday working in the city of Wayne and Garth, I would not have believed you. So you are living the dream. I'm living the dream in the City of Lights, yes. True or false, you are co-creator of Planning Prep. True. Uh, Back in 2001, 2002, when we were studying for the AICP exam, uh, my colleague and friend Devin Levine of House of Levine Associates said that if we pass this exam, we're going to create a website to help people train for the exam, to get ready for it. What year did you take the exam, Courtney? I think 06. 06, okay. Um, So back then, and this is how old I am, Uh, The study materials were pieces of paper, and they'd get shared, passed around, and you'd you'd be practicing. The answer would be C, and you'd be like, C? Why is it C? It can't be C. This has got to be wrong. So we said that we would create a website so that when you actually prepared for it, you'd find out what the answer is, why, why you were wrong, why you were right. And so we created that in 2002. It's been, boy, I don't know. I can't even do the math this morning, but 18 years. I'm sorry, no, 16, 17 years. We've had thousands of people all over the world take planning prep. Uh, We've received a lot of positive feedback. It led to us going around the country, giving day-long sessions. And the APA asked us each year to come back to the national conference, where we've been lucky to provide that training to people from all over the country. So, uh, yes, that is the longest short answer ever, but um, co-creator. So are you at, like, tour bus and groupies phase of planning prep? Um, well, I do have a gift, a gift shop, uh, if that's what you're talking about. Um, I'll give the address for that at, at the end of the podcast. But And t-shirts, a lot of mugs, things like that. I think planners do love a good mug or mouse pad. Oh, definitely. Maybe a tie. Okay. True or false, it took more times to pass the AICP than the U.S. citizenship test. I'm happy to say that I passed both after only one time. So I'm very happy about that. Um, once again, saying how old I am, when you did the exam, was it computer-based or was yes. it? Okay. So I'm so old, it was the old, uh, what's it called, where you fill in the bubbles, like a scan sheet. Scantron. Scantron, thank you. Um, and you had to fill it out. And then six months later, the answers would come in the mail. And that was a long six months waiting for the results. And um, kind of a funny thing about that, uh, a couple of years ago, the APA asked me to sit in and look at the questions for the new refresh of the exam. So they set me up at the testing center. I went in, sat in front of the computer, and I was supposed to just flip through the questions, just familiarize myself with them, and then give them feedback at the end. Well, I'm like, you know what? I came all the way here. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to see if I can still pass this thing. So ended up going through each question. And at the very end, just before I press submit, I had this nightmare feeling about not passing and all the hundreds and thousands of people that, you know, had used our program or the sessions to train and how that would look very, very poorly. So I pressed it, thankful to say that I passed. 
and I was really happy about that and then kind of forgot about it. Well, then a couple months later, I started to get all these emails from people from around the country congratulating me on finally getting my AICP. Well, it turns out that the APA never took my name off the list of people who passed, even though I was just there to go through the questions. So my name showed up in the planning magazine under the congratulations list. So I thought that was pretty funny. And I, I think I like to say that I'm probably the only person to ever pass the AICP exam twice. I mean, that should definitely go on your LinkedIn profile. All right. So taking it all the way back to that farm in rural Canada, how mm-hmm. did you get interested in urban planning? Wow. Um, so I think I, I have kind of a traditional story uh, of how that happened. I wanted to be an architect and um, really wanted to be an architect. And even my parents growing up on a farm, they really instilled in me the importance of traveling and going to the big city and experiencing a lot more than just, you know, walking around the field with my, my dog Boomer. You know, there was a lot more in the world out there. Um, and so when I was in high school, my parents took me to uh, Falling Water. And I look back about how cool that is that my parents actually took a high school kid and in the whole way there, I was listening to Guns N' Roses on a yellow Sony Walkman, probably a brat kind of. But we got there and we got to see Falling Water and that was like, this is so amazing. And have you been there before? No, I have not. I've been to both Taliesin's, but that's it. Oh, that's cool. Okay. So <clears throat> Falling Water, when I look at that, it's not just architecture for a building sense, but the way it's fit into the, the environment. And, you know, of course, it's sitting on a waterfall, but even the way the detail, um, I always remember there's... Uh, a part of the house where the window opens and because Frank Lloyd Wright designed everything, the furniture and everything, there was a table with a chair that he wanted in a certain place. And so he designed the window that when the window opens, it's cut out in the corner so it doesn't hit the chair that he actually wanted in that one position. So, you know, there's all that detail. So wanted to be an architect. So I'm in high school, my guidance counselor, where we have to decide university. He's sitting there going through my marks so Canadian, right, to say marks. Does that mean grades? Grades, yes, thank you. And uh, he uh, starts looking at my math, and he's like, hmm, yeah, maybe architecture isn't for you. And he kind of spun around and grabbed this this pamphlet called Urban Planning, and he gave it to me, and I wish I still had it because be whatever amazing. was in there, it, it worked. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. So ended up applying to Ryerson University in Toronto for urban and regional planning, and, uh, you know, basically fell in love with planning and I really had no idea what it was until until that teacher turned around and gave me that pamphlet. So what was it like going from the farm to the big city? It was a big shock. It was a big shock. Um, I really enjoyed it though. My Like I talked about my parents with traveling, they really took us to a lot of places and went to a lot of different places around the country, especially Canada. And I always remember every holiday we'd go to Toronto, get a hotel room and walk around. I remember falling in love with the city even at a young age about how cool you could walk to different places. There was excitement, there was lights, there was activity. You could do different things, which is, you know, I love the country, but the exact opposite of of where I grew up. And, you know, even my dad, um, getting back to the sense of travel, he, when he was 21, he sailed around the world by himself. Uh, in a sailboat all by himself. He was a National Geographic. And so you're growing up in a farm looking at your dad thinking, you know, what adventures has he had? So I was always looking, um, you know, trying to explore as much as I could. Um, So getting back to your earlier question about the transition of the city, um, it was a big change, but it was one that I really, really liked. And have you been to Toronto recently? I have. Great city, right? It is. Yeah, it's it's fantastic what it's what it's become. It's a world class city, and I think it you know still continues all those traits today. Very walkable, great neighborhoods, great transit. Yeah. Tell us about your experience in the planning program at Ryerson. So uh, Ryerson University was one of one of I think at that time one of the only two universities in Canada that the degree was in urban and regional planning. So I didn't have to go for a master's or anything like that. I could just specialize right away. And looking back, you know, I, I, I think that that was a pretty interesting way to get into it. You jump right into it for four years. Uh, the program back then especially was very design focused. And I remember I loved drawing. 
So being able to draw and back then with the T-squares and, and just the, the, the drafting tables and how fun that was. We had some amazing professors, very design-oriented, uh, um, a lot of sustainability, a lot of regional planning issues. And in the mid-90s, there was a lot of growth happening, especially in Toronto. So we learned firsthand about how planners can impact growth. Uh, there was a, a regional document that came out uh, the, for greater uh, for the greater Toronto area called the GTA plan, where it really tried to limit growth towards Toronto, which is the, they called it the Green Belt plan, which has been implemented and which has been a very successful tool to keep growth towards the city of Toronto. And if you've been to Toronto recently, you can see the impacts of that, the amount of high rises, the people living in downtown Toronto, the jobs, the businesses, instead of sprawling out you know, into the farmland, the prime agricultural area, because there's a lot around there. The Niagara region where I grew up, you know, that's a lot of wineries, vineyards, orchards, and those were able to be protected uh, through this Greenbelt program. So, you know, being at Ryerson through that, it was a really cool, it was almost like a living learning environment where we could get out of the classroom and walk around downtown Toronto and see what we were trying to learn about firsthand. So now you're working for the city of Aurora, and if people don't know much about it or only know it through Wayne's World, what should we know about the second biggest city in Illinois? Yeah. Uh, uh, Aurora is a fantastic community. And as you said, it's the second biggest city in Illinois. Um, it is a large community with a lot going on. And with the economy the way it is right now, there's a lot of excitement, a lot of development projects happening. Um, for the downtown uh, section of Aurora, it's, uh, it's had those issues that have come out of a lot of the Midwest, uh, older communities where those communities that relied on manufacturing, when those businesses left, there was a lot of vacancies uh, that were left in, in its wake. So for seriously decades, downtown Aurora has been trying to revitalize itself. And there's been a lot of amazing plans, a lot of passionate people in both elected and appointed officials, as well as community leaders, business owners, etc., who have worked tirelessly to try and continue to improve downtown Aurora. And it's got a lot of amazing assets. It's right on the banks of the Fox River. It's uh, got amazing history, architecture. A lot of the buildings from the 1800s are still in place. Uh, they've done some successful implementation in the last 10 years alone. Um, one of those is the Paramount Theater. Paramount Theater is this old historic theater that uh, through the direction of their administration has started to do a Broadway series. And they now have the second largest subscription-based attendance out of any theater in the country. They get almost 400,000 people a year coming to downtown Aurora to see these high-quality plays. We also have River Edge Park, which took old industrial property on the Fox River and has converted that through a master plan into an open-air concert venue. And they've had big names like Kiss or Lady Antebellum play, and they get 80,000 people in a summer to come and, and see that show. So there's a lot of excitement, a lot of things in place. My job, um, as and we joked about that earlier a little bit with my title, but the mayor, uh, who's a newly appointed mayor, He's putting a lot of importance on trying to improve downtown Aurora. My role is to try and connect planning, long-range planning, with economic development and implementation. So that's why my title is the longest title I've ever had, you know, Director of Facilitation and Development Strategy. I'm even making it up now. I, sometimes I get it wrong, but um, I have to look at my card. It just needs a good acronym. It, it, it does. It does need it. So anyways, I, I, that's my role there to try and bring three of those things together. So for example, Paramount Theater, 400,000 people coming to downtown Aurora. A lot of those people are saying, where do I get a bite to eat before? Where do I grab a drink after? So my role is to try and get those businesses to come to downtown Aurora. We're using a lot of incentives. I'm learning a lot about TIF, uh, um, historic tax credits, you name it. And a lot of partnerships to try and get businesses here. And I'm happy to say... Just in the last couple of weeks, we've got, uh, with our team, our economic development team, there's four big projects on the horizon that will fit mixed-use development into these old buildings. Some of these buildings, this one building in particular, Courtney, it's been vacant for almost 60 years. Think about that. A building that's almost been vacant for 60 years. It hasn't been ripped down. It's amazing architecture. It's seven stories tall. And we're working right now to get a restaurant on the ground floor and market rate housing above. 
And we've got four other projects like that in the downtown, all within walking distance of the theater. And so we're really trying to take advantage of everything right now to keep that momentum going forward. And so it's a really exciting time. It's interesting to put it in perspective of vacant for 60 years. It's like an entire generation or I know. It's unbelievable. There's one building where some of the councilmen were asking what was in that building before. And a lot of people just kind of look around the room like, uh, I I don't know. And like nobody remembers. That's how long some of these buildings have been vacant. It's, It's unbelievable. So what do you think Aurora's doing right that cities in similar situations might learn from? So I think, uh, especially because it's a planning podcast, I'll start out with with, uh, the city uh, about two years ago did a downtown plan with CMAP, the regional planning agency, as the lead. And so over the last two years, they've been implementing that plan. And I've only been at Aurora for seven months. So that plan was adopted before I got there. They did a couple interesting things. They hired a planner that was at CMAP, Don Hughes, to implement the plan. That's his role. And I think that's pretty unique. I don't know if you've heard of similar situations, but they completed the plan and the mayor said, we want to hire someone from CMAP to literally, whose their vision is is to implement the plan. So Don is on my staff and that's his goal to implement the downtown plan, which I think is really exciting. And I also think this combination of economic development tied with long range planning is a really unique system for implementation. And that's one thing that, you know, I think maybe hopefully we'll talk about later is, um, especially in my role over the last 20 years, I've done some amazing plans, works with amazing planners, great communities. But I think implementation needs to be such a strong focus because we've all seen amazing plans and the, the, the look of plans, especially now, how cool they are. They can be as attractive and as well-written as possible, but if nothing happens, I mean, it, it can be frustrating. So... Um, I think that's another thing that the mayor has really put some focus on is implementation. And that's my, ro- my role. I see myself as that. The other thing I think as it's important for planners, it's important for our role, is to be the glue for a lot of departments. So I think I've realized that the planners can do all they want. They can say, we need this. But if there's no funding, if there's no support, what do you do? So I find myself in this role as being the glue between public works so Public Works is the department that really works with finance to control the CIP. So you quickly learn if you want your project done, you've got to get it on the budget. You've got to put it in the capital improvement program. If you aren't savvy enough to work those deals and get your projects on there, then that's not going to happen. Uh, another thing that's happening is I can tie myself to the current zoning to make sure we look at our current ordinances. Are there anything on our books that are stopping development or the things that we can improve upon? So. You know, I'm constantly working with that. And then also in terms of just pure project management, I'm working with the building department. There's people that come to town. We finally have them in town. And all of a sudden they're frustrated with the building process. And I'm not saying that happens in Aurora. They have a very good system in place. But my role for a couple of the projects is to really basically hold their hand to help them through the process. Because the last thing we want it to do is get tied up on red tape or, you know, the developer, the owner get frustrated. So... Uh, I think those are some of the key things that are happening in in Aurora in general, especially the downtown to make things um, work as well as they're doing right now. I think most planners at some point in their career have experienced uh, frustration with implementation. And it sounds like you guys have really zoomed in to understand the barriers to implementation. Because from what I've seen, either the money runs out or the political will is gone. Mm -hmm or everyone's just tired after a one or two year planning process. Uh, Maybe they haven't allocated staff and said, look, this is literally your job. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you guys have uh, figured some of that out and I'll be curious to watch what happens. Great. I also read recently about plans to redevelop Aurora's mall. Can you tell us about that? Yes, so right now, um, and it was part of a Route 59 corridor plan that I'm working on. It was one of the first projects that was given to me when I started Aurora. And the Route 59 corridor is your typical commercial corridor about, you know, it straddles both Naperville and Aurora. It's the dividing line for both communities, mostly throughout its entire length in that area. And it's 30 miles west of Chicago. It's the second biggest commercial corridor outside of Michigan Avenue. It's an important 
retail engine for the community. But what's happened is, of I think has been relevant and seen throughout the country is with changing shopping habits, uh, a lot of those big boxes are becoming empty. The Fox Valley Mall is right in the heart of it. The Fox Valley Mall is that traditional mall uh, built in the 70s. It literally paved over a creek, um, and it's all asphalt, and there's your, there's your mall. Huge success, though, of course, like all the malls. But in the last several years, I started to see some vacancies, the biggest of which is three of their biggest anchors have left. And so we're trying to be proactive, and we don't want a dead mall. We want to keep it thriving. A lot of the stores inside the mall proper, as I call it, are, are still there and still doing well. But just the look of a mall when you pull up to it and three of the anchors are empty and, and literally the lights are out, you know, we want to make sure we're proactive. So we're working with the owners, with our community, with our residents throughout this entire planning process on trying to identify what we can do with that mall. What we're trying to do is uh, create a mixed-use environment at the mall. There's a lot of examples around the country that this has already taken place. When you do the research, a lot of communities are trying to do it right now. So we're, you know, we're not the first, but we're definitely trying to do that. And some of the plans right now are to actually demolish some of the anchors because what big department stores are left? What big department stores are going to fill these big spaces? So the idea is if you demolish the anchor stores, create a plaza, community gathering place with outdoor dining, restaurants facing that plaza. I've also learned a lot about the term experiential retail. I didn't know what that even was until I started this project. But of course, the idea is to have places and things for people to do once they get there. So kids like us, when we were younger, you know, we'd walk around the mall, spend money. Kids these days typically don't do that. I mean, Radio Shack, or not Radio Shack, <laughs> Music Land and the Arcade. Oh my God. How much time did you used to spend at picking out music? How fun was that? Flipping through the CDs. Awesome. Yeah. So all those joys are are, are lost now. But... So the idea is to create experiential retail. Maybe it's a rock climbing wall. Maybe it's a bowling alley. Trying to get different things there. Also part of that is uh, to add residential. So the idea is to get condominiums or apartments into this redevelopment to make it a neighborhood, to bring life to the area, uh, to promote walkability, not only create a neighborhood, but also provide potential customers for those new restaurants, for the mall itself. And it's been a very interesting process. We've got some great sketches, some great concept ideas, and I hope that in the next year we'll actually be able to start implementing these developments and start to see things happen. Through the planning process, however, um, there's been a lot of issues with um, the school district. The school district is uh, a very popular school district, very top-rated school district, but trying to add new students into an area where they traditionally haven't or historically haven't counted on kids being generated from has been a very difficult issue. They're at capacity. They're at capacity, yes. And so uh, what we've been doing is working with the school district, trying to exchange numbers to continue a partnership to create that win-win solution because for the community, we don't want them all to die. There's a lot of tax money that goes to the school district. At the same time, new students, of course, uh, for a school that's at capacity, that's a challenge for them too. So we understand that as well. So, you know, we're we're in the, dis- the discussions right now where we're trying to make sure we find that win-win solution. So it's been a very interesting process for me. It's it's one of those things where you know if you just kind of come into it fresh-eyed, you know what we're just going to redevelop the mall. It's a great idea. But when you actually get into implementing it once again, when you look at the impact it has, uh, both pro and cons, it's it's a very intricate and interesting process. So hopefully, um, like I said, later on this year, we'll see some progress and hopefully we can come to a win-win solution where the school district is on board and, and supportive of it. So was the redevelopment plan part of a comprehensive plan or other document? So the redevelopment plan, it, basically how we've done it is we're doing the whole corridor study. And in the middle is this mall, and the, the mall redevelopment is our sub-area plan. And so we're tackling it as, you know, you've, you've done a lot of planning work, Courtney, where it's the, the visionary illustrative concept, right? So we're not the developers. It's not a real development plan. We're just trying to lay the foundation for what we want to see, what the community wants to see. At the same time, we've got design guidelines in this document talking about the type of development we want. We want it to be high quality. We want it to have brick. We want it to have enclosed parking structure. We want it to have, you know, uh, 
businesses on the ground floor, you know, all that, all that good stuff. So that mall and how we're tackling it is trying to set it up for that potential development that actually gets submitted by the, the mall owners in the future and making sure that we work together with them to tell them what we want and, you know, also listening to them as well. So it's a very interesting back and forth process. Is this an example of what they call demalling? Are people using that term? You're going to have to help me. What, what does demalling mean? Basically taking those traditional enclosed malls and uh, renovating some or all of it, as you said, to sort yeah. of make it more outward facing, yeah. um, introduce new uses. Yeah. Then I think you're exactly right. That's exactly what we're doing. Yeah. So yeah, I, I should have mentioned that when the anchors are demolished, the mall proper for example, what I call it, uh, the idea is to have them face outwards as well. So there'd be an outward mall. And that would actually, in our mind, create almost a downtown feel actually surrounding the mall. So you'd actually turn that outside the mall into a ring road that could bring some life and excitement to the area too. And when you look at it, it's that traditional mall, like especially with the vacancies, and you see those fields of asphalt. I mean, to think about what could happen, it's, it's very exciting. It's exciting, but um, sure nerve-wracking for people. I think it's an example of we all agree on the the problem, but getting to a solution is difficult. I mean, I know enough about the retail business to be dangerous, but there's often those anchors owned their own land, so Mm -hmm. there can be uh, landowner issues, there can be a lot of competing ideas. I I heard in one town they wanted to just move all the elementary schools to the mall. Hmm. Interesting. Which makes sense from an operations point of view, but doesn't make for walkable, right, right. neighborhoods, um, kids in schools, that kind yeah. of thing. So I think mm. it can be difficult to um, sift through mm-hmm. ideas when there's such a big property at play. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And um, one of the things that, that I just dawned on me that I should have mentioned is what I was talking about earlier about how they paved over a portion of a creek to build the mall, um, one of the plan's ideas is to daylight that creek and actually make that a natural creek again and use that as an environmental amenity, have restaurants with patios facing that that creek. Um, That looks good in an illustrative plan. Do I know if it's possible? How much does that cost? You know, I don't know. So the one thing that we're always making sure we talk about in this concept is this is what we want, but, you know, are we going to force that developer to actually do that. I don't think force is the right word, but, you know, we want Or you may have to be prepared to incentivize a particular... Exactly right. Mm -hmm. So I'm from a small town that lost its largest employer in 2004, which meant 1,600 good jobs left the community. And it's no surprise that it had a ripple effect. And I see basically my small hometown dealing with what I call big city issues that they're probably ill-prepared for. Um, Changing demographics, pressures on the school system, employment, these sorts of things. I'm wondering uh, what your experience has been in Aurora in the time you've been there. So my experience in Aurora, I think you're absolutely right with in terms of big city issues. Uh, as the second biggest city in Illinois, it has its share of issues. It's got, as we've talked about earlier, a lot of opportunities and positives, but there are issues. Um, there's image and identity issues, but everybody continues to work very hard on that. Um, the one thing that I, I've really taken from working in Aurora, even for this short amount of time, is it's the most diverse community I've worked in, uh, from the mayor to the elected and appointed officials to the department heads to staff. And so I continue to learn. I continue to make sure that I keep my eyes open, my um, my eyes and ears open. Uh, when they created the downtown plan, there was a big focus on trying to make it very inclusive to make sure that everybody participated in the planning process. And I see our staff trying to continue that to make sure that everybody's voice is heard. One of the recommendations from the plan was a creation of an international marketplace. So Broadway Avenue is a state street, cuts right through the middle of downtown. The idea is to embrace Uh, the culture of the downtown area. And we're working with a consultant right now, uh, Ratio Architects, to actually sharpen our pencils and actually create that district. Uh, Is it through the use of building materials, the signage, 
uh, colors of materials in the awnings, the paintings, for example, to try to really embrace that, uh, the culture that exists in downtown Aurora. So it's something that I see in my role to make sure that I continue to keep moving forward. And uh, it's been very exciting for me. And it's something that I continue to learn every day. I'm wondering if you have a story about trying to understand what an urban planner is. I think most of us in the field, uh, for example, people have heard me saying herbal planter, or they think I'm um, plant trees or plant events. I'm wondering if you have a story to share along these lines. I I remember when I was at uh, URS Corporation, I was a senior planner, and I'd go back home for the holidays and all my relatives thought I planned retirement communities and, and uh, you know, financial planning for retirement, things like that. But um, I've come to the point in my career, Courtney, honestly, where I've just come to accept that people aren't going to know what urban planning is. But I think that might be a good thing. It, it shows people that there's so many things an urban planner can be. There's so many different areas of focus. And then depending who you talk to, where they come from, they think differently of an urban planner. So a developer has an idea of what an urban planner is. A resident who is trying to stop a freeway from going through their neighborhood has an idea. Um, My wife has no idea what I do. Um, uh, One of the funniest things is when I go to career day at my my daughter's school, I have two girls that are 10 and 12, and I, I go to career day, and I try to talk about urban planning. And... They literally stare at me. Now, maybe it's because I'm just funny looking to begin with, but all of a sudden when I put up that slide that has the picture of Minecraft or SimCity, then I literally see the light bulbs turn on. They're like, oh, that's what your dad does. That's really cool. And so, you can get paid for that. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's kind of where I'm at now with trying to define what urban planning is. Do you have a favorite planning acronym? Oh, my goodness. Don't we use a lot of acronyms? Um, well, there's the classics, TIFF, uh, the timeless ones like TOD, NIMBY, and uh, I actually heard one for the first time last week, YIMBY. Do you know what that is? I do. Yes, in my backyard. That is one, by the way, I would like to hear a lot more often. There's a whole YIMBY conference. A YIMBY conference. Wow. Okay. Well, I've got to sign up for that one. But yeah, so there's that. those are probably my favorite uh, acronyms. What are yours? Well, banana, just because it's funny. That's banana. build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone. <laughs> sort of nimby extreme. I like that. Yeah. And I do have a soft spot in my heart for mammal. I don't know that one either. As soon as I explain it, though, you, you will have seen these people. They are middle-aged men in lycra. <laughs> so they are a certain subset in the cycling community that okay. um, advocate sometimes for particular types of cycling improvements. I understand. I understand. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Very cool. See this. It's, it's <laughs> Can we get CM credits for this? I think so. As PDO, I think I can do that. Speaking of which, tell us a little bit about what a PDO is and what they do. Oh, thank you for asking. Yes, so um, as the professional development officer for the state of Illinois chapter, uh, PDO, um, my role is uh, I'm on the executive board, but also my role is to help planners in the state uh, prepare for the AISB exam, which is a pretty natural fit for me, especially with my background, but also to help people get CM credits, which with the creation of the CM credits, that is such an important part of our profession, especially to keep our AICP designation. So I find myself um, talking to a lot of planners that are either in need of getting CM credits, maybe their their windows running out, uh, or they need help. I also provide services for people preparing for the exam. I help set up online study groups. Um, we give the training of the state chapter board for the training. I've also, over the last couple of years, gotten a lot of questions from people to review their uh, actual submittal to get AICP certification. And I actually kind of, I'm kind of hesitant about that because I don't want to be the one who gives incorrect advice and then they know they don't get accepted to actually even sit down for the exam. So I make sure I tell them right away, this is just 
you know, my take on it and I try to give as much advice as I can. I find planners, um, especially younger planners, applying for that examination and answering those questions, they're uh, kind of, they kind of get stuck down in the weeds a little bit. And that's actually true for people who are preparing for the AICP exam as well. I often find people who know, um, they know how a bioswale works right down to the exact pebble and the exact weed, but they need to come up to a higher altitude and just know that bioswales are important for, you know, stormwater management or, or protect the environment. They need to keep it up at that level. Planners who get stuck in that level find themselves doing poorly in the exam. They also find themselves doing poorly even applying to get to take the exam. So I try to offer advice uh, to try and get up to that level. So your story about originally wanting to be an architect and then finding your way to urban planning, of course, reminds me of the classic Seinfeld episode where we know George Costanza uh, has always wanted to be an architect. He's put in a mentoring position and the kid realizes, why should he focus on one building when he can be an urban planner and Mm -hmm. think about the whole neighborhood, which Mm -hmm. for planners was like this amazing um, touch point or milestone in pop culture. I'm wondering if you have a favorite planning reference in pop culture. (laughs) Uh, Well, that is, that's my favorite. Uh, Another one I can think of, and I don't really remember what the character's name was, and you might have to help me out, but on Parks and Recreation, which by the way, coming from a park district background as a planner, that show was like my life. It was amazing. I always remember when uh, Leslie Nopes, Snopes or Nopes? For me, it hits too close to home and I've not been able to watch the show. Really? Oh my God. So Leslie, the main character, the camera zoomed in right on her face and she's like, here we are. This public meeting is going to be so amazing. Uh, it's going to be so popular. We're going to talk about so many issues that we rented out the school auditorium. And the camera zoomed in around her face. And then she goes, okay, let's go out and let's go through the curtain and see the crowd. And they open up the curtain. She walks on the stage and there's three people. And they want to talk about parks. And the first guy stands up and starts complaining about garbage. And they're like, oh boy. And I'm like, I think I see what you're saying. A little too close to home. But uh, long story short, I think... Wasn't one of her boyfriends an urban planner? There was an urban planner for Pawnee or whatever, and I think. But the way that you and I are just kind of clawing to try and figure out a famous urban planner in pop culture, I think, shows you we need a better marketing campaign. We need the APA to hire maybe a a modeling agency or a a talent agent. Uh, I'm clear the architects have a lobbyist somewhere in Hollywood that keeps us uh, back. But yeah, if there's anything we can do, maybe a Kardashian could be a planner. I like it. Well, I'm kind of surprised you didn't mention a particular Bill Murray movie, because I would have expected you to be a fan and have cataloged these. I love Bill Murray. It involves Gina Davis, clown makeup, and bank robbery. I don't know this one. I encourage everyone to check it out. It's called Quick Change. And before Bill Murray and Gina Davis go on a crime spree, he leaves his job in a very frustrated manner as a city planner. Okay. So add that to the canon. Okay, thank you. (laughs) So around the Illinois chapter of APA, Mm -hmm. I would say you're a beloved fellow, Mm. always known to not only participate and volunteer, but make sure people are having a good time while we're doing it. So I asked some of our colleagues in the Illinois chapter if they had any questions for you. Oh, boy. (laughs) Okay. And some of these don't even make sense to me, so I'm hoping you can shed some light. Otherwise, they might be so inside jokey that we'll, we'll have to edit them out. Okay. Did you find the transition from planning in Canada to planning in the U.S. easy or difficult? Well, that's not a bad question. No, I'm um, starting out oh, soft. Soft, okay. Um, I found it to be, I wouldn't say difficult, so I'll, I'll back up just a little bit. So I graduated in 1997 from Rice University, ended up getting an amazing job at the city of Toronto, um, and our department was in charge of the waterfront, the portlands. Everything was going great. And then in 1999, the mayor at that time decided to go for the Olympics, So overnight, that basically put a freeze on development. So my department basically, you know, was kind of 
I don't know if mothballed is the word, but basically we were coming in. Um, once again, I'm so old in 97, we didn't have internet on our computers. I played solitaire for about five minutes. I'm like, uh, this isn't working. I, I got to get out of here. So uh, a colleague of mine, Devin Levine, who I went to Ryerson with, was at the Naperville Park District as a planner. And we were just talking. He said there was actually an, an opening for a planning position. I kind of thought about how far I'd be willing to travel from Toronto. Chicago fell into that circle in my mind. So I flew out, landed at O'Hara. I always remember this. This is kind of an interesting thing. The executive director of the park district picked me up at O'Hara. And I remember thinking that, looking back, that's kind of odd. And especially living in Chicago, I don't think I'm ever going to drive for anybody to O'Hara if I don't have to. But, and we're driving from Chicago to Naperville. And I think Naperville is a uh, maybe a neighborhood in Chicago. As we're driving, the skyline of Chicago is getting smaller. I'm like, where am I going? So I get to Naperville, beautiful community, excellent river walk, fantastic place right beside Aurora, and ended up getting the job. And I was only going to be there for a year. I uh, ended up meeting my wife at a bar, and now uh, two kids and a minivan later, here I am. But the transition was fairly easy because I had a real good support system at the park district. I think with, for, for me and my experience with government, it, the public sector, it was, um, I don't know if it's better suited for kind of learning when you're there. I feel like in consulting, you know, time is money and you've got to know what you're doing. Not that I had to learn everything at the park district when I got there, but I didn't know how to negotiate with the developer on, uh, this is the early 2000s when 100 homes, subdivisions were just every day coming through the door. So I found myself uh, as a young planner negotiating with very seasoned developers, a lot of money on the line, um, and representing the park district and the community in terms of either getting land or cash for fee and lieu of the parks that were required through the dedication. And back then in the late 90s, early 2000s, major subdivisions were coming in almost every week, thousands of homes. So it was a very uh, interesting transition. It was one, though, I felt that I was prepared for because of uh, our training as planners were kind of built for transition where we, we kind of accept change in terms of change. I think we actually try to promote change. So when I meet somebody who doesn't like change, I kind of like get a little weirded out a little bit. But I think as planners, we're built for that. And so the transition for me was was pretty easy. So let's see, another question from the colleagues. Have you ever asked your city arborist to increase the number of maple trees in the community where you worked? I assume this is a Canadian joke. Does this person think I'm Buddy the Elf? Should I ask you what your favorite color is? I mean, <laughs> these are these are great Canadian questions, but no. I will just say no. Doesn't happen. <laughs> How do you jazz up law sessions at your state mm. APA conference? Okay. So one thing about me, and you touched on a little bit, is I take my job seriously. Um, but at the same time, I like to have fun. And so when I go to sessions that are dry or boring, uh, I hate it. And I actually tune out or maybe sneak out or whatever. But um, I'm lucky that over the last couple of years, um, through the law firm of Ansel Glink, some amazing gentlemen, David Silverman, Dan Bolin, and Greg Jones have asked me to help them in their law session. And so what we try to do is make it fun and entertaining. And I'll go through some of the things that I've done. Um, one year I was a dead person and I won't get into the details why, because those are, those are separate stories. But so I lied on the floor of the conference room in what I thought would be the position of a dead person. So if you close your eyes and picture, you know, kind of that contorted form, um, I tried to lie like that for the hour and a half. And um, it actually was a lot more difficult than I thought. I started to cramp up, um, but I took my role very seriously and I tried not to move. Um, one year I was like an Andy Cohen uh, interview uh, person. Uh, last year was probably my favorite. We had our state conference in Springfield and we actually set it up. We had our law session in the actual state capitol. And I was dressed in full Abraham Lincoln costume. Now, once again, if you told high school Trevor, once again with a great mullet, growing up on a farm in Wayne Fleet, Ontario, that you would be dressed as Abe Lincoln in his state capitol, I, 
I wouldn't have believed you. But sure enough, living the dream. And so we like to have fun. The one thing that I really gain a lot of pleasure from is that when we do the after conference questionnaires and surveys, that session is often very highly rated. And not only for their entertainment value, although we don't specifically ask for that, uh, it is also one of the highest rated questions in terms of when people learn something, what they get from an educational point of view. Good to know. I also heard you have a funny story related to setting up for a public meeting, which certainly Mm -hmm. every planner can relate to. So this is a story I also told at Fast, Funny, and Passionate uh, conference. I was setting up in a small town for a public meeting, and I got there early, like I always try to do, because there's always some issue with PowerPoint or something. And this was a small community where the meeting was going to happen in the uh, committee room in the fire station. So I went up and the fireman let me in. I got in there, set up the projector, the PowerPoint, and the way the screen was, it was shining right into the face of where the mayor was going to be sitting. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to try and uh, block the screen so that when my presentation's up, I can just go up there and give my presentation. So uh, I looked around the room and there was a TV in the corner and all these DVDs. And the first DVD I picked up, it was like... I'll, someday I'll show you a picture of it. It's really funny. It was uh, a fireman's workout exercise DVD. And so I took that DVD and I propped it against the bulb of the projector. I'm like, perfect. Light is not shining uh, in the mayor's face when it gets here. So I start setting up the folding chairs in the crowd for people to sit. And I'm sitting up the folding chairs and all of a sudden I smell something. And I'm like... I think I smell smoke and I turn around and the heat from the bulb had the DVD case on fire I run across the room I pick it up the plastic was melting I was literally watching it melting before my eyes the smell the smoke I freak out I run outside it was in the winter time open up the door put it out on the snow And I come back in. I'm standing there trying to catch my breath. I'm like, I almost burnt down a fire station. Now what do I do? So I take the DVD, kind of tiptoe back to the TV, put it back on top of the pile with all the other DVDs, and never told anybody about it until your audience today. Wow. mm -hmm. See what you can learn on this podcast? Well, I think that one takes the cake. I thought it was just going to be wrestling with an easel or something. Although, yeah, those are the worst. No. I've often thought there should be a public meeting set up Olympics. Yeah. Or at least like a that. triathlon. I like that. And not only that, an uh, easel takedown. How oh, many? Yes. I mean, trying to take those easels apart, too. How many times have you pinched your fingers in those old ones with the kind of the elastic band? While people are still asking you questions. Oh, of course, yeah. So our final submitted question relates to the last one. Have you ever been in a planning situation where you thought to yourself, they did not cover this in planning school? Yeah, I think um, I have a lot of stories like that. I I think just in general, though, preparing for public meetings, I mean, they can take a life of their own. Anything can happen. They're exciting at the same time. But, you know, there's been so many instances where I said that where they did not prepare me for this. One of the the scariest things that happened to me was at a public hearing for a, a plan we were doing, and it was for a village. There was an unincorporated area where the plan was to convert an unincorporated area on the riverfront to a marina. This is before the recession in the early two, 2000s, before 2008. And the end of this PowerPoint ended with a beautiful rendering, a sketch of this high-rise marina, hotel, restaurants, you name it. And... I pull up to the golf course uh, where the community meeting was at the golf course and the parking lot is packed and it's the middle of the winter and my colleague says, whoa, there's a lot of people at the golf course tonight. I go, that's not good. That means there's a lot of people that are coming to our public meeting. I pull up, people are literally outside with signs, with the village's name, with a line through it. People made buttons. Whenever you go to a meeting and somebody makes buttons, just turn around. Just say you were sick. Just go home. People had buttons. People were very, very upset. And the uh, village manager said, Trevor, you know, you're the consultant. Your job, 
the, the community wants this, goes forward with the presentation. And I knew the last slide had the rendering of the very thing that they didn't want to see. So every slide, people were yelling, people were swearing. Like, I, obviously, I can't repeat it, but every slide, people were swearing. And I knew... It was like the monster at the end of the book with uh, that I read to my kids. I know there's a monster at the end of this book. And so, anyways, I, I powered through it and pressed the button at the very end. And here, the last slide is this beautiful, high-dense marina. And people were screaming and yelling. I did my job, did it professionally, kind of, you know, as a consultant, you know, the Kevlar vest story. I really, that was really uh, true that night. Did my job, sat down, and, and the only person in the whole room that said good job was the village uh, administrator. But that was something to get your question that I did not learn about or prepare for in planning school. Could you have just not clicked on the last slide? Well, here's the thing. I looked at I looked at the village manager. I'm like, as if he was going to say, you know what? Don't worry about it. Let's just just turn stop it. there. Let's stop there. Oh, no. He was like, oh, yeah, the big nod. And I'm like, oh, boy, here it comes. Lessons learned. Mm-hmm. I appreciate all the stories you shared with us today. I'm wondering if there's anything else we should know about, either books you're reading or social media handles, websites, if people want to learn more about some of the things you've touched on today. Um, I think I would recommend uh, going to planningprep.com if you're preparing for the ASP examination. Uh, my Twitter handle is planner14. Um Besides that, please take a look at the City of Aurora website. Take a look at the some of the amazing architecture and history in the downtown I was talking about. And, you know, please keep checking with us regularly, and hopefully you'll see a lot of big things coming. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today, keeping it real and keeping us entertained. Thanks, Trevor. Thank you for the opportunity, Courtney. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at planning.org.